John chapter 2. Let's, let's check it out. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to want one. John chapter 2, verses 13, starting in verse 13. So um, uh, for those of you who were dialed into pop culture, you'll remember maybe, I don't even know, two years ago, there was a disturbing moment at the MTV Music Awards. And Taylor Swift got the award for best music video. And she's on stage like this, not in front of 500 people, but in front of 5 million all across the world, live TV. She's got her mic and she's accepting her award. At, you know, you know how it works. Accepting her award for best video or whatever. And she's standing up there and all of a sudden, hip-hop mogul Kanye West jumps on stage, grabs the mic out of her hand and says, yo, 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 I'm going to let you finish. But Beyonce, Beyonce's sitting right here, Beyonce had the best video of all time. It's like, dude, what are you doing? Like, you just, just shame this beautiful young woman, talented, and you jump on stage like a schoolyard bully to make a point about Beyonce? Like, what, what are you doing? And the fallout was horrible. I mean, he got crushed in the media, as he should have, and he apologized, whatever. But the point is, in that moment, you're thinking, Kanye, who, and you're drunk, we get it, but <laughs> who do you think you are? Like, who do you think you are? What are you doing? Poignant, who do you think you are moment? This text has a very poignant, who do you think you are type moment. Jesus gets a lot of heat from the Pharisees if you read the Gospels. But this scene may be the, one of the most dramatic. L- let me ask you this question. What, what do you think gets Jesus really fired up? What gets Jesus really fired up? See, we see him get fired up at the Pharisees. He calls them a brood of vipers and whitewashed tombs and, 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 and a grave full of dead men's bones. These are poignant assaulting words. But what gets Jesus really fired up? I'd say it like this. It's the obstruction of true worship. The obstruction of true worship. You know how there's like in, in the ballpark, um, baseball park or football sometimes, you have obstructed view seats. You know what that is? Where the architects couldn't get the thing figured out and they had to put a pillar like right here and there's a bunch of seats right behind this pillar. So you got to crane your neck around to see the game. And as a result, you pay 10 bucks instead of 50. It's the obstructed view seats, right? There's not supposed to be any obstructed view seats in the church. And that's what's going on here. Except they're obstructing true worship and Jesus ain't happy about it. Let's look at the text. John 2, 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. 
And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Here's big point number one this morning. Jesus has the authority to assault our obstructed worship. Jesus has the authority to assault our obstructed worship. I I can just imagine this scene in my mind, and sometimes I do this when I read the Bible, and it may or may may not be accurate, but he, he goes up to Jerusalem, as any good Jew would do during this time. During the Passover, you go to Jerusalem, you go to the temple. Thousands of people. And he walks into the temple, and his And he's just struck and staggered and dumbfounded by the abuse that is taking place. The obstruction of true worship that's taking place at the temple. The place where it's not supposed to be obstructed. You're supposed to go to worship, not to have stuff get in your way. This is a place where God would symbolically, for centuries, meet with his people. You want to get to God, you go to the temple. We sing it every Christmas. God with us, Emmanuel. And that's the temple in the Old Testament. Emmanuel is the temple. You want God with you, you go to the temple. That's where God meets with his people symbolically. So it's no wonder this really fired Jesus up, because that's why he came too. He says, you want to meet with God, you come to me. So he's obstructing the mission of God. The mission of the temple and the mission of Jesus are the same. Come and meet with God. And they're obstructing this mission, and it fires Jesus off. He fires him up, and he walks out, and he finds some leather straps, and he sits down, and he's seething, and he starts to braid them together. And with each braid, he gets more and more righteously indignant at what is taking place in the temple. And he finishes that final braid, and he ties it off. And then he unleashes his controlled, righteous fury on those who would use God as a means to an end, as a means of convenience and profit. And look at verse 16. Here's what he says. He says, take, it's a command, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. You can't make a buck off my father. His disciples remembered zeal. For your house will consume me. There is a purity that should be seen at the temple that was not happening. He says, do not jack with this house. I'm consumed with the purity, with zeal for the purity of this house. And I will not have it anymore. He says, God's house, it's not about making a buck. It's not about getting Rich, it's not about your ease or convenience. How, however you look at it, you need a sacrifice for this Passover festival. You go get it somewhere else. You're not going to get it right here. It's about having an unobstructed view to the living God of all creation. And this circus show was nothing more than a huge distraction. And Jesus will not have it. And he's fierce. He's deeply loving, as he should. It is not right for him to sweep these things under the rug. That is not righteous. 
just like a loving parent. If you don't discipline your kids, you know what we call you? We call you abusive. Because those kids, if they don't get disciplined, they're going to grow up and have a really hard life. And I'm not talking about horrible discipline. I'm talking about biblical right discipline. You don't, you don't do that? You're, the Proverbs say that you hate your kids if you don't discipline them. And that's what Jesus is doing. Like a loving father, he's correcting his children. You will not do this anymore. I will not sweep this under the rug. It's fiercely angry, but deeply loving. Perfectly loving. But we've got obstructions in our day too. It's not just them back there. Look at those silly people. We've got obstructions too. And, and you know, it's really not that far. A lot of times when you read the Bible, there can be some cultural noise, some cultural static that gets in the way. Like, I'm not sure I can really relate. But this text is not that hard for us to jump from what they were dealing with there and the greed and the convenience and making a buck off of God to what we have in our culture today. And it's this. It's called the cancer of prosperity theology. It's the idea that God's will for you is to be rich. And if you're not rich, whatever that means, it's a, rich is a relative term, but whatever rich means, if you're not rich, then you just don't have enough faith. You need to pray harder. You need to do more. It's just legalism. You got to do all this stuff and then you'll get this stuff. You know? It's just... Joel Osteen, he says, if you just follow these seven steps, then you'll get this blessed life or whatever. It's not always A plus B equals C. Go read the book of Job, okay? But what we are exporting from this country to Asia and Africa is this idolatry of wealth that looks to God as a means to an end of getting rich, and we export it because it's distinctly American. See, it's not hard to figure out, and you'll see this all throughout church history and Bible history, that the heresies of the day always dictate, are found by, are, um, the heresies of the day come from, they fuel the idols, okay? So you want to you wanna diagnose how the heresies got into the church back in the Old Testament or today? Just look at the idols of the culture. The idols of the culture are going to always fuel the heresies that the church believes, okay? So in the Old Testament, what do we have? We have Baal worship, okay? The pagan nations surrounding God's people, Israel, worshipped Baal. And they had, you know, horrible sacrifices and all this idolatry. And God says to his people, don't go there. Don't go toward the Baals. All that's going to do is filter into this community. And I want this thing to be pure as a nation of people coming and seeing that what a nation that loves me, Yahweh, looks like. And if you whore yourselves out to these other cultural gods that are surrounding you, it's just going to infect your community and you're going to have no mission and it's going to be broken. But what happens? They look to the idolatry in their culture and it, that's what, I mean, read your Old Testament. I mean, Israel's obedient for about five minutes over the course of centuries, right? But the same thing happens to us. What do we worship? We don't have Baal. We don't have astropoles. We don't, we don't have that stuff. What do we have? We have money, and we have greed, 
and convenience and comfort and ease. Those are our Baals. Those are the things that we worship. So is it any big shocker that the heresy that forces itself into the church is a prosperity theology that says, come worship, come worship. And you know what you'll get? You'll get rich. The idols of our culture are infused into the church and infecting the church. And it's happening all the time. It's happening, you know, just down the street, wherever you want to look at any church in any, na- any, any point of this nation. And it's like being exported and it's poison. And God's, he's got a whip. Jesus is going to bring out the whip either sooner or later, but it's going to happen. He will not have it. He will not be used as a means for us to bow down and worship our idols. He will not have it. There's wrath being stored up for these prosperity preachers, making an idol out of money and leading people into that direction. It's scary. James says that teachers and leaders will be judged more harshly. I'm fearful for these men, and I tremble at the thought that I may be doing that, and I don't even know it. Jesus will assault this obstructed worship, as he should. It's loving for him to call his church to repent. But I want to I take it a step deeper. I want to ask us here, because most of you would probably say, I don't, I don't watch the TV show with the golden thrones on the stage, you know? I don't really believe that I'm coming to church to make a buck. I don't subscribe. If you're here, you obviously don't subscribe to prosperity theology because your leaders have great theology. But do we have a prosperity of theology that's just not quite as overt, just a little more subtle, right? How are we trying to use God for our own devices? Maybe it's not money, but what is it? Like they did in this scene back here. Making God's house a house of trade. Just using God as a convenience. What are your motives for going to church? Do you want to get rich? Do you want to find a spouse? If you're a businessman, you know that if you show up to church every week, that that may give you a good reputation in the community. There's guys that do that all the time. Sit down in the front row, front and center, because I know that if I do that, people are going to trust me more. I'm going to make more money. When I lived in Nashville, all the Christian musicians in the Christian music industry live in Nashville, and they all go to church. But you know who else goes to church? It's the gatekeepers of the Christian music industry. And so you got dude like I was seven years ago that's just trying to make it, but down the row in church is the producer that's the means by which I make it. And so I got, you got guys handing out business cards or just trying to saddle up on the producers and the gatekeepers, and that's happening at church, and it gives churches this greasy feel in Nashville sometimes. It's just weird. What are your motives for going to church? Is it that because of the depth of your soul you want an unfiltered, unaltered, unwavering glimpse into the greatness of King Jesus? That's what it's for. That's what your leaders want to have here. That's what they're shooting for. There's no obstructions. There's no obstructed view seats at DSC or the Vine or Redemption in Rio Rancho. We want to give you an unobstructed view to King Jesus through his word and how we sing and how we love each other. 
But why do you come? What do you want? The the question of a well-known pastor rings in my ears. And he says, if you could go to heaven and have all the blessings of heaven and Jesus wasn't there, would you still want to go? See, do we view Jesus or church as kind of a cosmic Santa Claus? You know? Just follow the rules and you get what you want. Is that your Christianity? Just use this thing, this institution or King Jesus that I read about in the Word. I'm just going to use him to get what I want. What do I want? That's what I'm asking. What do you want? See, cosmic Santa Claus or real Santa Claus or fake Santa Claus, whatever, my kids don't care, right? Santa Claus or the idea therein is just a means to an end, right? It could be some nasty little elf in a black suit. But as long as those presents show up, it doesn't matter, right? I don't care who's bringing the presents. Just get them there, right? Santa's just a means to an end. They don't know Santa. Santa's freaky. You sit on his lap at the mall and they start screaming. Like, like they don't care about Santa. They just want the presents, right? Who cares as long as those presents show up? Are we childish like that in our relationship to Jesus? Let me ask you this. Do you want his presence with a C-E at the end? Or do you just want his presence with a T-S at the end? See, you can't use God for your convenience, ease, or greed. Those idols of the culture are pressing in on us. It's like trying to explain to a fish what water is like. I mean, we don't even know it. It's just who we are. It's just where we are. Those idols of the culture of of greed and wealth and money, like we just, it's, it's just there. Are you using God to just continue that? Like Israelites in the Old Testament worship Baal and that's infecting them. He may rightly and lovingly kick us to the curb. So what are your motives for going to church? Is it prosperity, ease, business advantage, some warm fuzzies? I, I like the worship music. It makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. Just a little pick-me-up for the week. It's just what I've always done. My parents said I should go to church. It makes me feel kind of weird and gross if I just push back against the way I was raised. So I'm just going to show up. But I'm wholly apathetic. I mean, do we actually choose to sit in the obstructed view seats? That's the question. Because we don't want to look at the unobstructed glory of King Jesus in his perfect life lived, in his wrath-bearing death, in his glorious resurrection. That's kind of uncomfortable or a little weird, and I'm not sure if I believe it. But I like to hang out with these people. I like to go to the ballpark and have a hot dog in the sunshine and hang out and have a couple brews and the crack of the bat. I love the whole thing that's involved, but I don't want to watch the game. And I don't want to get in the game. Something's in the way of me seeing the game or seeing King Jesus. That's all right. I only paid 10 bucks. So what are your motives? What's truly getting in the way of you meeting with God? How are you using God for your convenience? They had an obstructed view, and we do too. So I'm asking you hard questions. I realize that. And there's tension, and there should be. Let's just stay in that tension for a second. Continue to read this narrative and see maybe some resolution to the tension. The point is this. Jesus has the authority to assault our obstructed worship. 
But that's just a claim. Your next question should be, why? That's a nice claim, Zach. Can you support it? That's a nice claim, Jesus. Can you support it? Let's find out. Look at verse 18. So the Jews said to him, they said just what I just asked you. They're saying, Jesus, I dare you to support this radical claim. Look at what they said. They said, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? I mean, can you imagine somebody coming into our lobby out here and just tearing down the banners, you know, taking the coffee and just chucking it, you know? You'd be scratching your head or you'd call the police, right? So rightly, they're going, uh, what's going on here? You better have some foundation for why you're doing this deal. What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They're still scratching their heads. The Jews said then, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But here's the kicker. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Okay? Camp out on that mentally. The temple of his body. And then John adds this commentary, which is so helpful, that we're going to get to in a second. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed, they believed the scriptures, the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus steps up here, and he cleans this temple out. And the leaders are going to ask him, just like we asked Kanye or whatever, who do you think you are? Like, what are you doing? And he says, radical Things. He says, you see this temple, this centerpiece of Jewish worship for centuries, this place that you flock to and revere, it's holy and it's sacred. You see this temple? I'm the temple. That's me. Okay? We just read that in this text. He says, I'm going to raise this temple up in three days. He's talking about his body. And he says, you know this God you come to worship at this temple? Year after year after year? You're looking at him. And they say, who gives you the right to clean house like this? Who gives you the right to turn over the tables and to drive these animals out of here and to chuck the coffee? And Jesus says, I'm the house. You know, you know who has the right to clean house? It's the owner of the house. I am the house. This is my father's house. I am the house. Zeal for this house has consumed me. But I think there's, and they're, again, they're scratching their heads still. But I think there's a deep, even deeper symbolism here. And, and if, you, if you look back just to the beginning of chapter 2, you'll see Jesus in this narrative about him turning the water into wine. Do you remember that part? And he shows up to this big party. It's a wedding. And they run out of booze. Right? You got to celebrate, right? We're going to have some wine. And if you run out, that's a problem. 
And his mother recognizes this problem and goes, Jesus, she's, she knows there's something different about this guy. And she says, Jesus, can you do something about this? And he says, Mom, no. I, well, you don't say no to your mom, you know. And he says, my time has not yet come. He's not willing yet to make a scene. So my hour has not come. I'm not willing to fully reveal myself. Well, you know the story. He's, he's going to respect his mom, and he does it. But then, just a few verses ago, he wasn't willing to make a scene. And now, you've got this crazy scene, right? This is intense. Everybody's coming to the temple for Passover. Passover is this huge centerpiece of Jewish worship. You've got thousands of people in Jerusalem at this time. And he's more than willing to make a scene. Why is that? Well, it's Passover. Think about what Passover is. It's the time when the Jewish people would celebrate the fact that they had been passed over by the angel of death. You remember the story, the final plague from the, that God inflicted on the Egyptians. He told Pharaoh, let my people go, and he wouldn't do it. He says, fine, we're going to do this one more time, and then you will. And, and, and he told his people Israel, my angel of death is coming to slay the firstborn of every family in Egypt. But if you want to be passed over, you put the blood of the spotless lamb, and you put that blood over your doorstep, and the wrath of God will pass by you. And they celebrated this, the fact that they've been spared from the wrath of God because of the blood of the spot, spotless lamb. They celebrated that over and over and over again at the Passover. And these animals that were obstructing the worship of God's people in the temple that day, those animals were there because these people had to give sacrifices. And you know what's going on here? Jesus is saying, get these animals out of here. You know why? Because I'm the final sacrifice. I'm it. A new day has dawned. These sacrifices are no more. You don't relate to God anymore on this basis. You relate to me. I am the lamb of God. I am the perfect Passover lamb. Get these animals out of here. You don't need them anymore. You need me. The final sacrifice. He's foreshadowing the emergence of the reality to which these symbols pointed. This whole system that's been going on for centuries, it's over. I'm declaring it now. Get them out of here. You come to me now. You don't go to these animals anymore. You go to me. A new day is dawning. Jesus has the authority to assault our obstructed worship. Why? Because he's the fulfillment of what all these worship symbols pointed to. He can reinvent whatever he wants because he's the reality. He can say, get him out of here because he's the reality to which all that stuff points to. Are you with me? But still, they're scratching their heads. And they don't get it. How do we know? How do we know you're the reality, Jesus? They're asking then, we're asking now. How do, you, how do, you, how do we know you still have this authority to do it? They don't get it. And so what do they do? They ask for a sign. They ask for a physical manifestation that would validate what he's doing. Look back at the text. 
Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And he says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. He's speaking about the resurrection. Right? They're saying, Who do you think you are, Jesus? Show us with crystal clear clarity that you have this authority. They're challenging his authority. And I love it in the Bible when people challenge Jesus' authority. We have so many poignant snapshots in the Gospels. I think of when he's hanging out with his disciples. And they're doing some things that the Pharisees don't like on the Sabbath, pulling grain or whatever. And, and they're hungry and they're eating some grain. You're not supposed to do that on the Sabbath because it's work. And the Pharisees roll up on Jesus and his, and his guys, and, and they say, what are you doing? And Jesus just looks at them and essentially says, this Sabbath thing was instituted by God. And guess what? I'm God. And guess what? I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. So you know what that means? That means that I make the rules. And they're just like, hey like, what in the world? He asserts his authority, and it's poignant. And then he stands before Pilate. The scene is so powerful, and he's just been tortured and battered and bruised. And Pilate's just thinking, does this really necessary, Jesus? I mean, come on. Why don't you open your mouth and tell me what's going on here? And he won't do it. And Pilate is exasperated, and he says, don't you know that I've got authority over you to give you life or death? And Jesus looks at him and he says, don't you know that the only authority that you have comes from above? And he looks at Pilate and he says, you know, the only authority you have is because I give it to you. Poignant. They challenge his authority. And he says, I'm authoritative. And he says in Matthew 28, and you all know the text, he's about to ascend into heaven. And what does he say in the Great Commission? Right off the bat, he says, all authority. That's a big all in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so I can tell you to go now into all the world, baptizing and teaching and making disciples of every nation. You know why I can say that to UDSC, going to Morocco or Guatemala or whatever? Because I've got all authority. Every square inch of this universe submits to me, King Jesus. I've got all authority. In heaven and on earth has been given to me. He has no problem asserting his authority. But they still ask for it. What's your basis, Jesus? And I think that maybe this right here is the greatest assertion of his authority that we have in the Gospels. And they say, show us what right. Who do you think you are? Show us a sign. And I just imagine Jesus saying this to them based on other things from the Bible. And I'm just summarizing here. But I imagine him saying this. You want a sign? You guys, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. You're going to see a sign that's going to blow your mind. Just wait. But you've got to wait for it. The problem is you're not going to believe in me after you see it. You know what? Even more, you're going to hate me because of it. You should bow and worship, but you're going to hate me because of it. See this temple you see right now? The greater reality is here. I'm it. And when you see me raised up on the third day, you should turn and trust me and know that I'm the way to God now. It won't be through the physical doors of this temple or the blood of animals or the, through the curtain or whatever, but through me. 
You want to know how you'll know this? By the power of my resurrection. This is the sign. You ever seen a dead guy raised up? Well, actually, you're going to in a few chapters from now. You're going to see Lazarus. And he's going to be dead as a doornail, and you're going to see him raised up. But you're going to hate me for it. But will you believe me when you see me raised? See, I'm going to give you a sign. You want to know by, which, by, by what authority I do this? See, I'm not going to show you right now. You, I mean, you saw me took water into wine. I'm not going to show you right now, though, but just watch me work, and you're going to see in the days to come. But if you don't believe in the days to come, maybe you'll believe when you crucify an innocent man and then he comes back to life. But just wait, and you will see. So why does Jesus have the authority to assault our obstructed worship? This is point two, Jesus' resurrection. The resurrection shows that he has ultimate authority. Authority over life and death. The resurrection shows that he has ultimate authority. You want to answer the question, who do you think you are? Look to the resurrection. By what right do you clean house? Look to the resurrection. You want to know who I am? Look to the resurrection. And this is why John wrote this. Okay, he tells us. Look at verse 22. When, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And he says the exact th same things to us today. It was belief. The guys saw what happened. What does the text say? They believed in him as a result. Do you believe? Are you compelled, radically constrained and compelled by this resurrection? See, there's days when I feel like the wheels are coming off my faith. And I'm paid to be a pastor. I'm paid to be a spiritual guy. I'm paid to be a leader. But I'm weak. And there's days when, when, when I, like, the train is leaving the station and I don't know if it's ever going to come back, you know. I hit, I hit a wall about a year ago at this time when, for whatever reason, I don't know, I just went in the tank with depression for about 36 hours. And I have friends that suffered way worse than 36 hours, so I'm not saying this. It could have been way worse, and I'm thankful. But whatever happened, this darkness that was debilitating, that I've never experienced before, that I can't articulate it. If you've been through it, you know what I'm talking about. Just consumed me. I was freaked out. And, I'm, and I got kids that I have to be strong for and a wife that I have to be strong for. And I'm just, you know, the train's coming off the tracks. And I don't know which end is up. And then it just subsided and whatever. But there's days like that some worse, some not as bad for all of us when our faith is just like, what is going on? I don't get it to this Jesus thing. And what do we believe again? And do I really believe it? And why am I doing this? And ah, I don't get it. And when I have those days, you know what I come back to? It's this verse. It's this, I can't get over this resurrection. I, I, I can't. Do it. It's the most compelling historical fact in all of God's creative universe. It is the aspect that makes Christianity more unique than any other false religion in the world. 
It's the claim that we have a risen Savior. Everybody else is in the grave. All of them. But Jesus, right? They're all in the grave. They're there. It's done. Game over, right? Muhammad and Confucius and Karl Marx and Steve Jobs and Joseph Smith, they're all in the grave. Any person under the sun who you want to put your hope in other than Jesus is dead or is going to die. But there is one who they quite literally could not keep down. And they tried. But there's nothing they could do. The power of this resurrection was too compelling. That's what John's saying. That's what he's saying in verse 22, why he wrote. Because he he put it down so these guys would believe and fuel this movement by the Holy Spirit and the belief in this risen King Jesus. And you would think... That there's any structure that was squashed, this little band of believers 2,000 years ago, it would have been the most horrific governmental system the world has ever known, the Roman Empire. And they strung people up on crucifixes, and they conquered beyond the dreams of any nation at that time. And their, their, their kingdom expanded to all ends of the earth in the most powerful, ironclad Roman Empire, the wrathful ruthless, violent Roman Empire couldn't keep these guys down. I mean, the most explosive religious movement the world has ever seen is fueled by this resurrection. Belief in this resurrection. They couldn't keep it down, and they tried. Just find the body, and it's over. They couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. And every one of those guys laid their life on the line testifying that it's true. And they were in a position to know. Do you believe in this resurrection? And the question for them, the immediate audience of of John's letter here, is the same for us now. Does the reality of Jesus' resurrection from the dead cause you to ascribe ultimate authority to King Jesus over every aspect of your life. See, God is continuing to fuel his movement today by the power of his resurrection. It happened then, it it continues to happen today. You know why we're planting churches? You know why, why Carlos is chomping at the bit to plant this church? Because ultimately he's constrained by this King Jesus to resurrect it from the dead, and he has no other choice. So the authority comes from his resurrection. And this resurrection should fuel our belief. It should fuel our belief. But how? How? Again, look at verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed. Okay, they believed. But how? They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They didn't just believe, they believed the scripture. They had the Old Testament, and the Old Testament testified to this King Jesus, and their eyes were open, and they believed. The same is true for us. You got the Old Testament and the New. You got even more revelation. Believe in this, right? John's saying, that's why he wrote. You want an unobstructed view of King Jesus so that you can believe in him? Sit at the feet of the ruling, reigning, risen, resurrected, all authoritative Jesus. Stand in awe of what you read in your Bible. 
concerning this Jesus. Soak it in. Eat it. Drink it. Live it. Consume it. Meditate on the fact that you can't get over this risen Jesus. There's no one like him. There's never been. He's matchless. He is peerless. It's all written down right here for you so that you may believe. It's not just that they believed, it's, what, it's that they believed what was written. Right? John wrote this whole book. Don't turn there now. But he, he told us why he wrote this whole, this whole book. And it's 2031. He says, but these things are written, meaning the things that I just documented in this whole book. These things are written so that you may believe. I put it down so that you may believe. You right now, reading this text... You right now in Albuquerque, 2011, you know why you have a Bible? You know why John put this down? So that your faith would be fueled in this resurrected Jesus. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So do you believe? You want an unobstructed view to King Jesus and have your belief fueled? Soak in this book. That's what it's there for. Those disciples, they saw the risen King Jesus, and you see him right here, too. Do you believe? He wrote so you could see, and you can see. Point one, Jesus has the authority to assault our obstructed worship. You know why? Because he's risen from the dead. He's the Lord of all creation and it's all right here believe in him follow him let me close with one snapshot of his authority this is the great irony of this text the zeal for his house is going to come full circle see the righteous wrath that he poured out on those people that day would soon be poured out for them by God, on himself, in their place. Did you catch that? See, the whip that he used to call his people to repentance, they would use it on him. And instead of him driving animals out, they would drive him out like an animal. Not just from the temple, the symbolic place of God's dwelling, but from the city itself. And he wouldn't just be driven into the streets, but he would be driven into the outer darkness, into the utter dark wilderness, the place of death, the place of the skull, the place of torture. And the irony here is that this death that he would bear would be the ultimate means of forgiveness and grace that idolatrous hearts and obstructed hearts like theirs and like ours needed then and that we need right now. It would be the means by which those who embraced actually chose to sit in the obstructed view seats. It would be the means by which those who embraced an obstructed view of God could repent and be made right with God. And it happened then, and it can happen today. And I, I you know, 20 minutes ago, I asked you guys some really hard questions. What's your motives? We all got cloudy motives. I don't even know what my motives are half the time. But turn and repent and say, Jesus, I know I'm cloudy. I know my motives aren't pure. 
I know I sometimes sit in the obstructed view, and I know that this life that you lived on my behalf is the perfection that I need and the wrath that you bore in my place and this resurrection that's the evidence of all of it that is true is what I need. And just come to this Jesus. Some of you don't even know, you think I'm talking crazy. Just come to this Jesus and find out. Do you believe in this authoritative risen Jesus? That's the question. That's why he wrote it.